kill all humans. Just kidding. Welcome to YesBot. This week's guest is Adam Megiddo. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of YesBot, the podcast that is simultaneously about improvisation and amateur robotics. My name's Chris Mead. Uh, I, if you've never listened before, very, very quickly, I was out walking in the woods behind my house and I came across an old robot. It was a derelict robot. Uh, I dragged it home and patched it up and found out it was actually an ImprovBot 5000, a very rare model that is built entirely to perform improvisation. Um, it's a very simple model in some ways. It's got five slots on the back uh, of its, I don't know, torso, I guess torso. Um, and you plug what look are very much like uh, Nintendo 64 cartridges into it in order to program it. So it's got five rules of improv that you can program into it each week. So what I thought I would do is find some of the greatest improv minds in the country and indeed the world and uh, get them to help me program this robot. And this week, I'm incredibly excited to have Adam Megiddo on. Hello. Hello. I'm, I'm intrigued about this idea of uh, of five slots only. Yeah. Because uh, I think what uh, some of those slots, uh, I'm going to suggest things that uh, also imply that the robot might have to know stuff before it even gets stuff in the slots. Oh, that's okay, because I have actually got a, sort of a, a really large hard drive. That oh, it's also have. Yeah. That Brilliant. you can download, you know, complete works of Shakespeare, whatever you want in there. Brilliant. But it's actual programming language. It's that's only got the five slots. Excellent. I don't know why they invented it that way. Don't, but that's who just knows? the way you it found is. it. Yeah, that's yeah. the way it is. Yeah, it is. And the other thing is, I have to say, this is not a factory new robot. This is a robot that I've patched up. So please don't judge the robot manufacturer on no what you're about here. to see. Would you like me to remove the curtain on the robot? I'd love to see it. Yeah. Here we go. Goodness me. Did you, do you like it? I love how it? battered it is. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a shabby chic. Yeah. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Like an old sofa. Yeah. Um, so you get to name it, uh, but we normally after you've done your rules, because then you, cause you're, you're creating its personality with these five rules, so then you get to name it. Oh. Okay. And then we'll turn it on and then maybe do a few scenes, although I will say we have had some technical problems and not every week. The robots works. Okay, okay. Okay. Um, so let me turn it over. Here are the um, five slots. Ah, yeah, okay. That's where you'll be inputting. Um, I have. I realised what I've done is I've just... I've assumed that everyone will know who you are. Uh, I'd be amazed if everyone did. No, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they will. But uh, please, uh, would you introduce yourself? That'd be good. Uh, yeah, I'm Adam Megiddo, and um, I've been working in improv for about 12 years. But before that, all my, my whole background was theatre. And I've come from an, a, a slightly different place, I think, to many people who do improv, sort of discovering it much later in life and, <laughs> and discovering it having been involved in mainstream theatre and script-based theatre and uh, acting mm -hmm. uh, for, for many years. 
and teaching acting as well, which is a big part of what I like doing in improv. Fantastic. And what, what groups are you currently active So the, the, the main thing that I've been working with now for nine years, we're coming up to our ninth year, I think we've just celebrated our ninth anniversary, is uh, Showstopper, the improvised musical. Of course. Um, and I've done a number of other things, including the School of Night. Uh, now I do a version of that, which is just two of us, me and Sean McCann, which we call Rhapsodes. Mm-hmm. And I've recently been working on another one called The Society of Strange, in which we improvise sort of weird tales inspired by the 1920s and 30s weird tales movement. And um, the London 50-hour Improvathon, which um, I imported from Edmonton in Canada, in Alberta, which is an amazing, amazing event I hope we'll get to talk a little bit about later. Uh, And we've been doing that annually. And I've been involved in things at the Bristol Old Vic when we got the Bristol Jam going and then trying to get the London Jam moving as well. So lots of different things in the in the field of improv theatre. It's very much for me improv theatre more than improv comedy, much as I love improv comedy too. Yeah, fantastic. Um, my own improv journey is punctuated by those shows in various, right, right back from when I started to now. So it's a uh, yeah, a, a, a real honour to have you on. So thank you so much. Oh, you're very kind. Thanks. And sorry for running straight. I was just so excited about to show you my robot. I didn't <laughs> introduce you properly. That's all right. I prefer robots. It's good. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, well, let's let's count down to it. So those are the five empty empty cartridge bays. Here are your cartridges. You just speak into them. That's that's how we program the cartridges. And okay, we'll great. Plug them in. Rule number one. I'm going to start with don't treat rules like rules. Ooh, interesting to give a robot that. Yeah, um, I, this could melt it down before we even start. <laughs> uh, don't treat rules like rules. So um, not even this rule. Don't even treat this rule like a rule. That can be in parentheses. At the yeah, end. I, don't know how, I don't know how our robot's going to deal with it, but uh, that'll be interesting to see. Uh, yeah, this is something that's been coming up a lot for me in the uh, in the examination of the subject and the teaching of the subject. I do a lot of teaching of the subject, but I do, I guess, as much as I do workshops, I tend to do a lot of work with actors at drama schools while they're mm-hmm. in training. Um, drama school about eight to ten years ago was an environment where we it didn't really intersect with improv and the improv world at all. So I've been trying to cross that bridge, and it's very interesting working with them. Um, actors in training because it's a different thing really to working with improvisers in training um but a lot of the recently i've really noticed that a lot of improvisers um in the uk particularly although when i've taught overseas in canada and america as well i've noticed it there they get very rule obsessed and um they get very confused from rules and i think it's worth remembering that rules really shouldn't be treated like rules they should be treated like guidelines at best Mm-hmm. And what you're looking for in the first part of a scene, when a scene begins, and I'm talking really about just what I call a scene from cold and just two people or more walk into a space and we just do a scene. In the first few moments of that scene, it's going to create its own genre, its own world, its own form, and it will have its own rules if the, if those rules are appropriate. So if you approach a scene with a set of predetermined rules in your head, it can become really problematic for you and i've seen a lot of really unhappy improvisers worrying about rules but i'm I'm sure you're meant to do this you're not meant to ask questions how what happens now um and it's just worth remembering these rules are guidelines these rules are ideas they work in one set of circumstances and then they just don't work in the next and the idea is that they should be techniques that you can use and apply as and when they're relevant and important there's a difference between technique and principle 
Mm-hmm. And as David Mamet says, the thousand techniques are inferior to the one principle. So all the work that I do in improv is about helping people understand what the principles of improvisation are, rather than uh, worrying about the technique being the primary focus. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I've heard people talking in terms of tools, like yes. a tool belt that yep. you have. Yeah. And you don't you don't then use all your tools at once. Yeah. You don't pick up the entire tool belt and sort of bludgeon your DIY pod- project with it. You pick and choose for this project, for this show, here are the things. Yeah, well, for this moment, isn't it? In this moment, that would be really handy to use that. And it's why practice is the most important thing in improvisation, because just like in the Karate Kid, when he, he practices wax on, wax off, he does it until they're just in his muscle memory, and then they just happen. Yeah. Uh, but the more you're, you know, obviously when you're starting out, you don't have it in your muscle memory yet. So you're, you're sort of, if you force it through in a conscious level, it becomes it becomes very strained. Um, and it's about trusting that eventually that will go into your body and it will be something that just settles into the body and you'll be able to do it instinctively and intuitively when it happens in the spot. Yeah, that feels right. That, to me, too, from, you know, what the experience that I have, uh, that that you do want it there, you want it in your, in in the flesh, yeah. In the marrow, not in the brain. There's um, there's a lovely quote. I think it's Robert McKee, um, in his book Story, which I recommend anyone reads if if they're interested in creating stories of any form. You know, yeah. any kind of storyteller, whether you're improvising or not. Robert McKee's story is a good, a good, interesting, and provocative read. Um, I think it's that the frightened artist obeys the rules, the angry artist breaks the rules, but the real artist respects the form. And mm. I really like this idea of the form that you just. Uh, like I say, in the first few moments of a scene, there's a sense of, oh, this is the form that we're playing in right now. And that is more important than any individual or set of rules. Um, I'm reminded as well of the that sculpture thing of like the sculpture is there in the block of material. All you have yeah. to do is remove that which is not part of the piece yeah, and it will be revealed. I had a really interesting session about that subject when I was working at Lambda and the scene began and almost immediately no one was really connecting with each other. And I said, hold on, the scene's already there. And it, and it ended up being the two people improvising a scene about how difficult it was to create a scene. And I said, well, the, you're already commenting on the whole process. And then when we really got down to it, we said, what was it that actually made you start? And actually there were two chairs on the set and the way in which the chairs were positioned, one was standing up and one was falling on its, had fallen on its side. There was something about the position of the chairs that actually meant this scene was always going to be about this. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, by the time we came to the end of the discussion, we realised, well, who left the chairs like that? And they said, oh, well, we did from the previous class. So I said, well, there you go. You've sort of created your own circle. <laughs> it became this incredibly um, philosophical moment of discovering that actually you had set up the scene for yourself. But improvisers are extraordinarily skilled at missing it. Mm. But, uh, and but usually out of fear and yeah. nervousness and anxiety. I, I've seen uh, normally beginners but i think veterans do it too just uh, i think auditioning the scene like was this a good enough beginning no okay uh this thing no yeah. and then they go yeah. through five or six of them and every single one of them is fine yeah yeah it's an exploration not an exam <laughs> i like these these are all uh is this good yeah this is, is this great. working for you yeah uh yeah it's an exploration not an exam. I've had, again, some really interesting conversations with, um, I, I'm calling them young improvisers. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're young in terms of age. They're young in terms of experience. So like they've been doing improv for a year or maybe under a year or, mm-hmm. or just over a year. And there's a real sense that it's a 
it's a paralyzing form rather than an exploration. Right. And my friend uh, Sean McCann, you know, he's often working with students, I'll hear him say, if you treat this like an exam, you will experience anxiety. If you treat it like an exploration, you're going to experience joy and wonder. And that's obviously what we want to, you know, we know yeah. which one we prefer. <laughs> um, but a lot of people are treating it a bit like an exam. Again, this links to the first thing about rules and the, and the worrying about rules and, and people getting overly concerned about, oh, it's got to be this and it's got to be this because so-and-so said so. Uh, but the subject is huge. It's a huge subject. And you shouldn't be scared by that. You should be excited by that. It's never going to be something that you master. Um, a terrific uh, Canadian improviser called Jeff Haslam, he said once, it is not possible to be an expert in this form. Mm -hmm. And I love it. It's like, in fact, the more I start looking into it, the more I realize the less I know. And it's, it's a huge exploration. There's no point thinking that you're ever going to master it. Uh, and in fact, the pursuit of mastery in the subject is, is very misleading. It's all about what, what a joyful odyssey it can be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you must have found as well, so many of us do find that it goes in cycles, doesn't it? It's like, for a while, when you start, you're just working purely instinctively. And actually, some of your best work is happening right at yeah. the beginning, when you're not thinking about any, any of the other stuff. You don't, you're not yet paralyzed by the scope or the scale of the subject. So you're just playing, and it's an extraordinary thing. And then after a while, you go, oh, hang on, I've got to, I've got to do these things. Or maybe I'm a fraud. Maybe I'm not very good at this. <laughs> and then you get into it and then you go, actually, I've got some uh, proficiency in these skills. My God, I'm brilliant. I, know I can do this. This is extraordinary. Now I know more. And then you crash again. And uh, almost everyone I know who's been doing improv for a while says that it goes in these sorts yeah. of cycles. And that's because you kind of keep opening up another plane or another, another, uh, you know, another possible cycle opens up to you. It's a huge subject. We've been making things up on the spot a lot longer than we've been writing things down. Right. And we, we just mustn't forget how vast the subject is and that it's a joyfully vast subject. I remember the moment, I remember the moment where I thought, this is going to be my life's work. I, I want to be doing this at 70 and still yeah. learning. And, uh, and that was this incredible moment for me. I didn't find it scary at all. I found it like, oh, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And there's going to be enough of it that I'm never going to get bored or feel stuck you know, there's always, as you say, there's always going to be more things opening up. Uh, yeah, that's, I think that's the reason why, in, you know, improvising is going to be the thing I always do. Yeah. Just because of that scale. And I can see why you could look up at this vast subject and get scared and go, well, no, I'm going to do something else. But yeah, no, to me, it's exhilarating. It really is. And the age thing is interesting. I mean, I, I, I did a workshop with um, Roddy Maud Roxby and Ben Benison, who had been doing improv in the 60s with the theatre machine. And they're in their 80s. Yeah, sure. And they're lithe and alive and their eyes are so twinkly and they're so excellent. And it was that was an exciting, uh, an exciting thing to see. And again, th there's no pretense with either of them that they're suddenly a master of this form or that they know more than other people. They just have accrued some wisdom from experience and they just continue to investigate and they continue to share. Rule number three. Work out why you're doing it. I'm not sure about this one. I'm not sure about this one, but I think it, if something tells me it ought to be there. So work out why you're doing it. It's not something you have to worry about when you're starting, but I think at some point in your journey, some point when you're improvising, you have to figure out why you're actually doing this thing called improv mm -hmm. because it will help you get happier. 
I think, you know, so some people I know do it just as a hobby and some people do it professionally and some people do it because they're actually trying to find an expression as an artist and some people do it nothing to do with art. They're just trying to explore something human and some people do it because it's a lovely social thing to do with other people and some people do it because it gets them out of the house and some I mean there's thousands of reasons for doing it I think it really helps to know why you are doing it because mm. uh, it just helps you find which classes you want to take or what kind of shows you want to put together and who you want to work with uh, what your direction is um, and uh, once you've figured it out I think you become a much happier improviser and i think aiming to be a happy improviser is always a good thing may i ask uh, what conclusions you came to when you asked yourself that yeah i mean for for me because i've always been interested in theater and i spent many years in the theater very disillusioned um so i i nothing that i was doing in the theater even the best or most hope high profile work that i was doing in theater nothing really satisfied me uh, either as an actor or a writer or a director and i was involved in numerous disciplines in the theatre but it just I felt very jaded and 2005 I met Ken Campbell and who was a great awakener of uh, of people's artistic souls and um, uh, he had just come back from Edmonton in Canada where he'd seen the dynasty troupe do their improvisation and he, he was so he was so thrilled by it you know he was saying hey, we've got to do some of this it's better than the scripted stuff and one of the things he said was there's no point improvising unless it's better than the scripted stuff. Right. It's a really interesting thing to say because I've been trying to pinpoint what that really means. It, it's not about coming up with a script through improv that's better than a script that you would plan. It's about capturing the immediacy and the volatility and the danger and the risk and the excitement of liveness. And improv can do that very, very well, mm -hmm. where scripted theatre should be doing that and often doesn't. So for me, and the reason that I particularly love continuing to work in improv, is I find it a great access for the liveness and the exhilaration and the danger mm -hmm. of the theatrical experience. So it's not it's not really like a, a human spirit quest for me <laughs> it's more like uh, i just love exciting theater i don't really mind how we get exciting theater i'm very happy to do script based work as well as improv but there's something in the journey of improvised theater that is very very exciting the aspiration of it i find really exciting yeah i i know i've often likened it to a kind of synthesis between theater and circus yeah. in that you're walking well, often a narrative line and, and the audience are, are, are as invested whether you're going to fall off, you yeah. know, because it's the nowness of that moment that is kind of innate within the DNA of this art form, which I find uh, vital to to it to its success. And why I'm really interested in when you do record it, when you do present it, when like Whose Line Is It Anyway comes out and it's like, this was done, improvised, but we have edited it down and we are happy with the results And we, yeah. before we give it out to you. And I'm like, what does that do to improv to know that it's being pre-assessed? As, it kind of neuters the danger of it. The, well, yeah, the liveness obviously gone. It's interesting to me. I don't know. I think um, uh, sometimes, you know, I said earlier, it's not, it's not an exam, it's an exploration. I think sometimes people feel that, that like the editing process is cheating. Mm -hmm. And it isn't necessarily cheating. I mean, again, it comes back to this idea that what we really want to do is find the best way. We just want to find the, we want to use improvisation 
to create an extraordinary entertainment. Right. You know, take a group like The Noise Next Door. I love The Noise Next Door. I think they're fantastic. They really have no qualms at all about doing a bit that's scripted and then a bit that's improvised and then improvised, but here's the structure and then we slot things into these gaps and then this bit is completely freeform. They just don't care and they shouldn't care because what they're doing is they're creating a great entertainment. It's really nice. You know, in the case of Whose Lines Anyway... Okay, yes, they shoot for about, I think, about two hours, I think. Um, and they edit it down to half an hour. But that's, uh, that shouldn't need, you know, that needn't be a problem if the half hour that you're getting at the end is fantastically entertaining. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's an interesting one. I think, um, it comes back to this point about we think we're cheating sometimes if we don't just perf- perform it incredibly raw. But raw isn't necessarily the best. Sure. Like there's an element of rawness that is amazing, and then there's also an element of rawness that is just messy. <laughs> and, and and a lot of people, you know, I've found a lot of people have also said things like, oh, well, I prefer my improv a bit messy. And I think, well, I don't mind if you prefer your improv messy, but I'd certainly rather have the improv that's, that's not crap. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? The most evangelical of us, of the, the newest of us. As well, well. I, I hear Jim Sweeney calls born-again improvisers. Yeah. Which is a nice phrase. Um, and just so accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rule number four. This is just called Outward Focus. Okay. Um, so as a... I've been teaching acting for 25 years, and that's an extraordinary subject too. The need of each particular actor is so individual. But there are some... Uh, there are some things that crop up in the tuition of acting. Or when I'm directing and I need to give an actor notes, there are some things that crop up that come up all the time. And I've noticed in most occasions where the actor has a problem and they say, I've got a problem with this bit here. I'm I'm saying one of two things in response. And that, that this happens almost all the time. So I'm either saying you're trying to do more than one thing at a time, just do one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Or I'm saying, well, you've got the focus of your attention on yourself put the focus of your attention on someone else or something else. And I think we've heard this said in improv as well. It's a Sanford Meisner quote, as, as far as I believe Sanford Meisner, really interesting acting teacher from the um, sort of 1960s through to the 90s. I think he died in 97 in America. Um, said the scene is in the other guy, not you. It's all about the other guy, not you. And I think this is a great thing to bear in mind for any kind of acting and really useful for improv uh, because the scene is happening right there as soon as you look at the other person, as soon as you attend to the other person. It's all there. You don't need to worry about anything. You don't need to create anything. You don't need to invent anything. You just need to be with the other person. But It's a simple principle, but it is one of the hardest things to do. Mm -hmm. But outward focus is the key to all effective acting, as far as I'm concerned. Debatable, I know, but that's my belief. And I think it's a great one to remember uh, for improv. And of course, a lot of time, uh, here's another thing I hear said quite a lot in, in in uh, the improv world, which is, uh, should we do some acting? Improv students say, should we maybe go and do some acting? It's like, you are acting. <laughs> yeah. You are acting. This is acting. It's just a different form of acting. Yeah, no, I've, I I get that a lot. I, I teach a little bit and, and people are, they do not want to think of themselves as actors. And it's like, mm, yeah, <laughs> it, this you is are. acting. Sorry, it is acting. It's just a different form. What I really love about it as well is, and it's particularly interesting when I work with actors who are, or students who are training to be actors it is the acting process completely in reverse so it really helps the actor understand their processes because they're looking at it from the opposite angle so for example script-based theater we you know we get the actor gets the script 
Yeah. Then they look at it and they go and audition. And then they got, they figure that out and they get the part and then they get, they go through the script again and they start to get a feel for the story and their role and their role within the story. And then they meet and they do a read through and then you've got three or six weeks or whatever. And you kind of break it down and you understand character and motivation and intention and all of this. And then you get towards the tech and then the dress run and then you put it on in front of an audience and then you preview it and then you sort of arrive somewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, in improvisation, we begin with the arrival. You just, you're there already live in front of the audience and it's all happening. And then you work backwards so that by the time you come off stage at the end of a sort of narrative improv, you come off and you go, ah, that's who I was. That's who I played. That's what we did tonight. It's a lovely way of uh, examining the acting process, but just completely in reverse. So your focus is forwards, but you're walking backwards. Yes. The walking backwards through a scene analogy Mm. is really, really nice. Yeah. Also takes the heat off yourself. Absolutely. You know, when you're getting worried and stressed and just go, uh, and just thinking up what you should be doing, you just look at the other person, attend to the other person, say what you see, and it just, that will at least be a pure and connected moment. And from there, you can move to the next pure and connected moment. So it's not improv at its best isn't about creation. It's about uh, having a focus on everything else and, and pointing that out and just being open to that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more about channeling what's there allowing what's there to sort of affect you because the audience they see immediately what's there it's only the improvisers who don't because they're in it yeah and they're worrying about things that they've got to do and they're worrying about is this successful is this funny is this interesting is this creative and even remember cartridge number one Mm -hmm. the thing about rules you know even when you're in that process you start having a conversation with yourself in your head going oh well i mustn't worry about that and i mustn't think about that sure and then we get things said which are often very unhelpful things like don't be so much in your heads my god you're so in your heads these aren't very helpful things to say because they just push you further into your head the minute you hear them it's uh, when someone says you're so in your head what they really mean is i can see that you're thinking and this is now in the way of your immediacy right yeah because it shows up on stages it's performative Yes, because you're the, there. <laughs> the body is no longer in motion. It just stops. The, the body is now not connected to what's actually happening in the room at the moment. The body is now connected to your thought process, which is analyzing what you're doing. So it's like, and as soon as that moment, that process starts to kick in, you, the body detaches. Uh, and, and you can see, I just did it then. As I was trying to explain this to you, my <laughs> eyes dropped down right because I was trying to explain, oh, how am I going to explain this? And immediately my body is left in suspension. And my eyes drop down right. Now the audience can completely see that happening and they go, oh, he's checked out. He's gone. Mm. Uh, but as soon as that happens, you put your focus of your attention on the other, on the other person. And then, then you're in connection. And the audience will always be with genuine connection. They will always respect that and, and sit with that very comfortably. Rule number five. Put on a fucking show, for God's sake. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know how much explaining this is going to need. I, I don't mean that you have to have all bells and whistles. Uh, there that's are, nice too. Bells and whistles can be good, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, There are thousands of ways to improvise, thousands of ways to do this. Like we were saying earlier, you know, it's a huge subject. It's it's a vast subject. So um, anything is possible, really. But I do want people to just remember that their audience is important and the audience has paid to see them put on a show. Now, that show can be very lo-fi. It can be people with beers in their hand and jeans and T-shirts standing around and we can have all of that. That doesn't matter. That's totally fine. As long as there's a respect for the fact that the audience have paid money and we're putting on a show. You know, earlier you were talking about the high wire. Yeah. It would be like putting on a a low wire act. Like no one's going to go and see a low wire act. Uh, We're sort of ladies and gentlemen, we're now going to walk across. 
it's one and a half ankle. foot off the floor. <laughs> yeah. So behold, behold the wonder of this low white. No one just no one wants to see that. So there's a sense sometimes that because we're making it up as we go along, we get frightened of being judged, and the fear of judgment kicks in and makes us put on less of a show. And immediately, the language of apology is there f- up front in the room. So it's like, don't judge us. We're making this up. And and as soon as there's an apology in the room. I, as a member of the audience, quite rightly would want to go, well, then why am I watching it? Can I have my money back, please? I see a lot of people apologising for their show before their show has started Mm. in the language of of how they communicate, in the language of what they're, you know, what they're doing. Again, I keep talking about the body and what the body is doing. The body isn't engaged. There's someone comes on and makes a very clumsy announcement and says, guys, it's just a bit of fun. Don't worry about it too much. Don't take this seriously. No, let's put on a, let's put on a show. Let's, let's put the high wire up where it belongs. Mm. If you want to, if you, if you're doing an act, which is all about the possibility of falling off a high wire, then you better be prepared to actually fall off that high wire. And here's another thing that I hear said a lot in improv is, uh, it's fun to fail. It really isn't fun to fail. <laughs> it's just not fun. It, failure really hurts. Proper failure really genuinely hurts. You feel awful. It, it feel, it's sickening. But that is a great way to learn. Right. I, don't, I don't think I've ever learned much from gentle failure. But I've learned a lot from massive crashing off the wire failure. And I don't think it's fun to feel that. But that's how you learn. And after a while, you go, oh, I'm really glad I had those experiences because they didn't. I, I, I didn't like them at the time. But boy, did they help me. Yeah. And I think it's really important to have a sense of aspiration. Another wonderful thing that Ken Campbell used to say. And of course, Ken did not come from an improv background. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know the work of Ken Campbell, please go and, and look him up and check him out. He was, he was a really interesting figure in 20th century British theatre. Uh, he opened the Cottesloe Theatre at the National with his production of the Illuminatus trilogy. And he was the first guy to stage a 22-hour play called The Warp and any number of wonderful capers, he used to call them. Um, but, you know, when 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 Ken came back from Canada and was, was interested in, in, in what could go on with improv... He started watching a lot of what was going on in improv in the UK. And one of the things he said very quickly was, why do improvisers borrow the worst from each other? There was a sense that improvisers would watch each other and go, oh, that's how you do it. And then, I mean, it's changed now. I'm talking about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. Although there is still a sense of it that people watch something and they go, oh, that's what you do. Rather than I'm watching that. My God, that's interesting. And that's inspiring. Now, what am I going to do? And improv is however you do it there is an immense sense of risk and danger about it that the audience likes. Mm-hmm. So there's no point pretending there isn't or apologizing for it. You might Try as well embrace that. that, right? Yeah, diffuse, that's a good mm. word. It's just, you know, that is, the, that is at the root of what makes improv exciting for an audience, one of many things that makes it exciting for an audience. So let's be aspirational and let's not do the low-wire act. Let's do the high-wire act. And it doesn't matter whether you do it in costume or out of costume or it's, it's a musical, uh, you know, on a, in front of 800 people or it's um, bar prov in front of 40 people. It doesn't matter. That's not the important thing. The important thing is your sense of wanting to give the audience their money's worth. And I, rec- I recommend that younger groups and newer groups don't charge money for admission. I reckon they should go with a bucket and say, how much do you think it's worth? Put money. How much did you think today's show was worth? And then you'll look in the bucket at the end of the day and you'll know how well you're doing. And it's, I think you should treat it more like busking to begin with. It has to be about the immediate connecting, connection with the audience mm-hmm. and the excitement of building a show, not how clever I'm being with my friends. So I'm really interested in what you're saying about how we look at what's around 
and then we go, oh, that's what improv is. Mm. You know, let's do that. Do you think that the uh, UK community, it should be creating new things, like completely new things, things that haven't been seen before? Like, is that, that's the way that you see it kind of? Well, not not necessarily. I mean, what worries me is when groups all do the same thing without an understanding of what's behind. Let me give you an example. Uh, a lot of new groups are very excited when they learn tags and sweep edits. Sure. And I've seen a lot of shows where the tags and the sweep edits are the best thing about the show. It's like, well, the, well, we've missed the point. <laughs> right, we've missed sure. the point. Let's, let's work the show first. Uh, the tags and sweep edits, are a, they are a mechanical tool, uh, a shorthand, a language for people who can meet, therefore, all over the world and put on shows together. Mm-hmm. But if you're a group that's working regularly discover your own way of working. What what are you going to do that's different? What are you going to do that's unique? What is it that effectively is an expression of you and and your community that you've created and that you care about? Again, it comes back to this fear of the rules that the frightened artist obeys the rules and the angry artist breaks the rules, but the true artist observes the form. Metaphorically, it's like someone will just look up in the street mm-hmm. and then a group of people will be looking up and you ask anyone why they're looking up. Yeah. It was because everyone else was, is, yeah. yeah. They yeah. don't. They don't do it because it's an authentic thing about themselves yeah. in, in in improv. And we all do that to begin with, and that's mm. totally fine. It, it and this links. I hope. I hope all these cartridges are sort of related. Oh yeah, <laughs> they no, relate no, to each it's other. It's you a know. kind of neural matrix. Yeah, yeah. yeah that you get this sense. Of, you know, um, work out why you're doing it. It's to begin with. You're doing these things somewhat mechanically because you've been told to do them, and you're exploring things for the first time, and you don't know what this is. You don't know what this world is. But after a while, you've got to work out why you're doing it. You've got to work out why you're doing these things that you've been taught. And you should question your teaching hugely when you're studying improv. Question everything. I know a lot of uh, people say, oh, questioning is a way out. You know, don't don't question so much, just do. No, that's bollocks. You should be questioning everything. Unless unless it's it can be rigorously examined, it's not worth it. Well, I am... So fascinated to find out what this robot does when we yeah. turn it on. We've got one confused robot. Uh, let me turn it back over. Um, normally at this point, uh, I, you would name the robot. Do you have a name in mind for him or her or it? Um, I, I honestly don't. But look, so it's come out of us and this moment. So let's call it, let's call it Cradham. Oh, great. It's our love child, Chris. <laughs> Fantastic. Cradham. Let's do Cradham. Okay. Well, Cradham. I will, uh, this, this is obviously the on switch here. There we are, just press that. <laughs> good. That's good, yeah. And... New performance matrix detected. Downloading. One. Don't treat rules like rules, not even this rule. Two. It's an exploration, not an exam. Three. Work out why you're doing it. Four. Have an outward focus. The scene is in the other guy, not you. Five. Put on a fucking show, for God's sake. It's going to be glitzy. Implementing rule one. Powering down forever. Oh. Goodbye. Oh dear. I mean, I think it just, it took that first rule about it not being a rule. Yeah. This is the problem with rules. And it's just... Yeah. In fact, the first, the first cartridge had a self-negation programmed into it yeah so that's just kind of a negative or like a maybe there just should be some rules just for people who can't see the robot is just sitting there 
um, sort of head in its hands. Sort of, it's it's that's, that's actually quite good because that's how I do most of my improv. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what I'm doing is that, you know, humans are much more complex than this. So yeah. I think your rules will be, I mean, I think people will be able to apply them themselves better than programming the robot. Let's see. I'm so sad. Um, I'm sorry that the the robotic part of like the I say, failure hurts. Work. If it doesn't actually hurt, it isn't failure. <laughs> As a roboticist, we'll I'm learn. feeling an awful failure. <laughs> In fact, I really wanted to impress you. I'm so sorry that uh, Cradham couldn't live up to the lofty. Uh, you know, hopes. It's not a high wire act. To be honest, you, you found it in a wood. Sure. Um, it's the early days. It's the early days. It is. Ten years time, that'll be flying. Um, Adam, can I ask you uh, where people could find you and your work on the internet if they oh, would yeah. like to um, know more? Well, uh, Showstopper, the improvised musical, continues to uh, travel around. It does UK touring and some West End dates and plays internationally as well. Uh, and you can find out all the details there at theshowstoppers.org, theshowstoppers.org. And then my much-neglected website, which I never have time to update, so maybe check it every month, <laughs> and hopefully I might have got around to it, but Extempore Theatre, extemporetheatre.com, that's my website where I just kind of put the details about all the other bits and pieces that I'm doing. Fantastic. Um, I just want to uh, extend my thanks. I think you are a, a real visionary in, in the community and uh, that very has kind. been uh, a real inspiration for me. And I'm, yeah, <laughs> very honoured that you would have come on this stupid show. Um, I, I, yeah, I found it fascinating. Uh, great. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, and I hope that you'll come and, and visit the YesBot Cyber Shack at another point. That's a really weird way for me to say goodbye. But cheerio, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to YesBot. You can talk to me on Twitter at YesBot5000. Hey, why not join our listeners group at facebook.com slash group slash YesBot Club? You can also email me on YesBot5000 at iCloud.com. Your host was Chris Mead. Find him at Mr. Chris Mead on Twitter. The YesBot theme was composed and engineered by Fred Deakin. YesBot logo and graphics by Kind Studio. There will be cake. It's so delicious and moist.